Father, in Hebrews 4, we are invited to come boldly to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy in a time of need. And the sense of that is that not only can we come and not only can we find mercy, but uh, we come to you and ask for a well-timed help. Timing is so critical. Timing is always critical. But you are the owner of time and you are the controller of time The times are in your hands. At times, we find ourselves in over our heads. We find ourselves baffled by the events that we are swimming in. And we are looking not only for mercy, we're looking for a well-timed help. Inevitably, there are guys that are here this evening who are in great need of a well-timed help. Um, Every guy in this room is dealing with something. Might be a relational issue, a broken relationship, a wayward child, a health issue. just the frustration of getting older and not being able to do what we used to be able to do and never thought about it. But now we got to think about it. No man likes to be weak. We like to be together. We like to be strong. We like to be competent and capable and proficient. But Lord, you work so strangely when, um, when we're strong and when um, we can achieve our objectives and we can get things done, we tend to um, forget you and we tend to blow it up with pride and think we know what we're doing and we tend to think higher of ourselves than we should. And so in order to rescue us from ourselves and our own foolishness, you will come along and make us weak you'll either let us hit the wall from our own foolishness or you will put up a roadblock to keep us from getting any more foolish. But suddenly, we're weak. Suddenly, we are debilitated. Suddenly, we're unsure. Suddenly, we lose our confidence, and that's when we turn back to you. Oftentimes, our difficulties are of our own making And we think that disqualifies us from asking you for help. But it doesn't. It doesn't. He said in Psalm 50, call on me in the day of trouble. And I will rescue you. And you will honor me. We thank you that the Lord Jesus is the Savior. And it is true that he went to the cross to save us from our sins when we trust in him alone for salvation. But we are so thankful that that is not the only time he saves us. He saves us as we make the journey through life and get ourselves in 
treacherous situations because of our own foolishness or because of something that someone has done to us or just events have transpired that we didn't see coming. But the fact of the matter is we're in trouble and we're desperate. So we call on you in the day of trouble. And you rescue us and we will honor you. You are the master of the well-timed help. For those who are in need of that this evening, encourage them that it's on the way. They, they may not see it on the horizon, but that doesn't mean that it's not on the way. It'll show up at the right time. You always show up at the right time. Your faithfulness is staggering. So we thank you tonight. As we open this passage, give us wisdom for what's ahead of us in the next 24 hours to live skillfully and carefully according to your word. We would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, we'll be in Ecclesiastes 11. Last week, in Ecclesiastes 10, Solomon was talking about the two ways to live. That corresponded with what Jesus said in Matthew 7, that there are two roads. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. That's the road we all start out on, the road that leads to destruction. It's the most popular road. That's why it's broad. But when he invades our life with the gospel and pulls us to himself and regenerates us and we respond to him, he puts us on a different road. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Destruction, that's where that thing's going. But narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So there are two roads. He went on in Matthew 7 and said that there are two foundations. He closed the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, by saying that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. So now he's going to talk about two foundations. Every man chooses a road, one of two. Every man chooses a foundation. Houses have foundations, uh, nations have foundations, uh, families have foundations. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. And the storms come, the winds blow. But that, uh, that house is steady and that house is firm because it is built on the foundation of the rock. Then he went on and said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the sand. And the winds came, and the storm raged, and great was the fall. That was Ecclesiastes 10. Now, in Ecclesiastes 11, 
really what he's doing in Ecclesiastes 11, he's laid out the two paths. He's, uh, he's going to basically say this. Uh, there are two ways you can live, and he has covered this in the book of Ecclesiastes. You can live under the sun. That phrase is used many, many times. You can live under the sun. That's the life that lives from the earthly perspective. That's the life that lives as though there is no God. That's the way of foolishness. That's building your house on the sand. That's taking the broad road that leads to destruction. Or you could acknowledge the God who created the sun is over the sun, who is sovereign over all things. You can fear him and keep his commandments uh, and that's the way to life. And really, in Ecclesiastes 11, he is kind of, I, I think, issuing a call to, uh, to make up your mind and decide and get bold and get with it. And after, after running through these 10 chapters where he takes the pursuits of men, Solomon, we've said this many times, but early on he knew the Lord. Somewhere in the middle of his life, he got off the rails. His, he married foreign wives. He wasn't supposed to do it. They turned his heart away from the Lord, and he really kind of lost his mind. He kind of went insane and started living life as though there was no God, although he knew there was a God because God had appeared to him twice as a young man. But he just decided he was going to go his own way. Now, we've all done that. Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. But we love being our own gods. We just love it. Now, we don't want, we don't want to really come out and admit it, but we really like calling the shots. We really like being in charge. We really like being in control. We really like planning our steps and pulling it off and achieving all of our objectives. We, we love that. We glory in it. We revel in it. Uh, if you're really good at it, you can write a book about it, and you can hold seminars. Um, and they'll come and listen to you because that's what everybody wants to do. But the end thereof is destruction. If it's under the sun without God. Blaise Pascal said this, men despise religion. They hate it, and they fear it is true. <laughs> he was talking about Christianity. Let me say that again. Pascal said, men despise religion. Men despise Christianity. They hate it, and they fear it is true. I, I'm reading a, a book, and I can't even tell you the title. I just got the book yesterday. Uh, it's about the life of uh, Christopher Hitchens, the, the famous atheist who died of cancer a while back. But the gentleman writing it, and I'm sorry, I did not plan on saying this. Uh, I read a review on it. It came from Amazon Prime yesterday. I started looking at it. This gentleman debated Hitchens on two occasions, on several occasions. They became friends. They actually took two road trips across the United States. And uh, this was not public knowledge. I mean, some friends knew they were taking a road trip. But they, uh, on one of the road trips across the United States, 
together, they studied the Gospel of John. And just in the first chapter or two, he gave some background on Christopher Hitchens and his perception of God. Grew up in a middle-class home in England. Went to um, the, his, his folks were, you know, really sacrificed so he could go to one of the elite boarding schools, prep schools we would call it. Uh, you know, those, those schools don't have a great reputation. Churchill hated it. C.S. Lewis hated those schools. Uh, Hitchens hated it. Went off when he was eight. If you ever read Churchill's biography, he'll talk about it. C.S. Lewis talks about it. Um, the, um, the bullying, the, uh, the homosexuality, uh, the sadistic beatings from headmasters. Uh, Hitchens experienced that, Lewis experienced it, Churchill experienced it. And Hitchens, this guy began to figure out as he got to know Hitchens, that Hitchens' view of God and Hitchens' view of Christianity came out of that um, boarding school that quote-unquote was Christian, Saint something. They always seem to throw the name of some saint on there. They would have mandatory chapel, but often the ones one or two up front, the leaders of the school who did mandatory chapels were the ones who would beat the young boys with rods with their pants down until welts and even blood would come and they seemed to take sadistic delight and he associated that with Christianity. That has nothing to do with Christianity. He made a statement uh, that what Hitchens wanted in his life and I don't relate to that kind of school situation. More than likely, you don't either. Thank God for that. But one statement he made about Hitchens is that really what Hitchens was after was complete and total freedom without any judgment. Now, that's a great concept uh, as far as it goes, but the problem is that's the road to destruction. There is a judgment. That's how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. There is a judgment. Um, what happened to Solomon is that he tried that life of total freedom, but in the back of his mind, he always knew there was judgment coming because he'd been raised with the truth. So he tried a bunch of different paths that he thought would bring fulfillment, and this is pretty much lined up in Ecclesiastes 2. Uh, he tried materialism. He built, he just didn't build a house. He built houses. And he just kept building houses. And he just kept building houses. Uh, he, uh, he loved stuff. He, he, he was a collector of just about everything. He was fabulously wealthy. He had uh, everything his heart's desire. He did not refuse what he wanted. He says that in Ecclesiastes 2. That'd be kind of, anything you, any, you walk in the Bass Pro, and anything you want, you just get. You know, you walk into uh, Neiman Marcus with your wife, anything she wants, she gets. I, I saw a, a, just a sliver of a piece on Michael Jackson probably 15 years ago. Uh, there was some documentary, I, I watched maybe 10 minutes of it, but I remember the section where he was walking through some upper level 
shopping area somewhere, maybe in Vegas after a concert, and he had his entourage, and as he was walking through the shop and there was a guy with a video camera running, he would just walk and say, I'll take that. Whatever he wanted, he took. Solomon says, later in Ecclesiastes 2, after describing that life, twice he says, I hated my life. It's empty and it's futile. So he tried it all. Now, tonight we're in Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 10. And uh, I, would, I would title this tonight, The Big Lessons of Life. The Big Lessons of Life. At some point, you got to choose which trail, the trail of wisdom or the trail of foolishness. you got to decide what foundation you're going to build on. Are you going to build on the rock? Are you going to build on Jesus Christ? Or are you going to build on the sand, just stuff and... Uh, money and possessions and all that kind of stuff. See, that's the road to destruction. But every guy's got to decide. This uh, Ecclesiastes 11 is taking the wide-angle view of life. Uh, he's looking at all of life. If you'd notice verse 9 and 10, in verses 9 and 10, and I'm going to read these and I'm going to come back to them, but I'm going to pick a couple things out to show you the perspective. He says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desire of your eyes. That sounds kind of dangerous to tell a young man that. Ah, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Now, we'll come back to that. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Contained in those verses, he talks about the seasons of life. He talks about the, the stages of life. He talks about the chapters of life. He talks about uh, childhood. Then he talks about young manhood. Uh, he mentions uh, the prime of life. You know what the problem is with the prime of life? You don't even know you're in it. <laughs> because you're young, and usually when you're young, you're kind of semi-stupid, and you don't know how good that is. Right? Uh, but the problem is with the prime of life, it's going to pass. And then when you get past the prime of life, what do you get? Well, you start aging. Yeah, you start aging. When you're in the prime of life, you play basketball, you just go play. You, you go run full out. You don't stretch. You don't do anything. You just play. I remember the first time I pulled a hamstring. I was 27 years old. I was shocked. I'd seen guys stretch before, but why would I do that? Now, I mean almost 40 years later, well, I got, on, I got on an escalator the other day and pulled a hamstring. <laughs> Life changes. He's looking at the entire, he's looking at all of life. And at some point, in the goodness of God and in the grace of God, because um, he, here's the deal. We're all on the wrong road. We all start on the wrong road. But by the goodness of God and the mercy of Christ, huh, 
We love him because he first loved us. If you've gotten off the broad road and you're on the narrow road and following Christ and you say the Lord is my shepherd, my gosh, God has been good to you. And once we come to know the Lord and once we're born again, now the issue is, um, now we're on the right trail, but now we're going to go from immaturity to maturity and there are lessons to be learned. Quite frankly, the earlier we learn the lessons, the better off we will be. But we tend to only learn the lessons the hard way. Kind of how it works. Uh, uh, Two main sections as I see Ecclesiastes 11. The first section would be in verses 1 through 6. And to me, here's what this is saying. It's saying, learn to work hard and leave your success to the Lord. Learn to work hard and leave your success to the Lord. That's a big lesson, and that's a hard lesson to learn. Secondly, the second big lesson, verses 7 through 10, learn to enjoy life and trust God with your future. Learn to enjoy life and trust God with your future. Now, those are the two big lessons, but each verse under those headings contains uh, their own distinct lesson. So let's work our way through this passage. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 through 2 to me, these are fascinating verses. Uh, here's, and, and here's how I would describe verses 1 and 2. I think verses 1 and 2 are saying, learn to invest like a merchant. Learn to invest like a merchant. You say, what the heck are you talking about? Well, let's look at it. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters for you will find it after many days. I remember hearing that verse in church as a kid and thinking, why would you put a loaf of bread on a lake? Cast. That verse always mystified. It never made sense. And I've heard gospel songs. You know, sometimes gospel songs are crazy. You know them, you sing them, but they make no sense. Some of them do, but some of them are just ridiculous. And there are a lot of gospel songs, especially if you grew up in certain churches, uh, that talk about casting your bread upon the water. What the heck does that mean? The guy's singing it. They don't know. You know, I mean, most Christians don't know. Cast your bread upon the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. I'm going to read Michael Eaton here because he just gets right to this. He says, the allusion in verse 1 is to the element of trust in ancient business. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. This is fascinating. Ships on commercial voyages might be long delayed before any profit Resulted. Have you ever heard of Lloyd's of London? Sure you have. You know how Lloyd's of London started? It started in London. There's a concept for you. 
uh, London was a hotbed of shipping, and these merchants, you know, they'd have all these goods, and they'd send them out all over the world, and, uh, you know, they didn't have any uh, communications, they didn't have satellite phones, they didn't have telegraph, they didn't have anything. And they're hoping these guys are going to come back, and there's going to be a profit. But the problem with putting goods on ships is that ships shipwreck, and ships go down at sea. Um, and you could invest and, and put, you know, your goods on a ship and you could be bankrupt and not even know it for two more years because that ship went down 300 miles off the coast and you're not expecting them back for two or three years. And you're finished. And that was happened to a lot of guys. So they started, some guys got together and said, hey, listen, we got to come up with some kind of system because this is insane. And that's where they got Lloyd's of London. Uh, Eaton goes on and says, Ships on commercial voyages might long be delayed before any profit resulted, yet one's goods had to be committed to them. Now, here is what's fascinating. The only king of Israel and Judah who ever put goods on ships to do international trade was Solomon. He was the only one. Jehoshaphat tried it, and it didn't work. His ships went down. And nobody else ever tried it. Solomon was the only guy. Uh, in fact, in 1 Kings 10, verse 22, Solomon's feet, uh, fleet was sent out, and they would bring back gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Um, it was basically a three-year venture. He goes on and says, uh, Solomon basically is calling his readers here to take life as from the hand of God. Take life as from the hand of God. Because after all, God is sovereign over life. God is sovereign over all the events of life. Remember Ecclesiastes 7? Consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent in the day of prosperity. Be glad in the day of adversity. Consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. Uh, God makes beautiful spring days that are just pristine. God makes hailstorms that'll blow out your windshields. Can a calamity come upon a city unless the Lord sends it? Amos 3, 6. Um, God is the one who causes well-being and God is the one who causes calamity. That's Isaiah 45, 7. Way to go, Sixto. You win the car, man. That's excellent. That's a great verse, though, isn't it? Yeah. So, see, God's sovereign over everything. So... As Eaton says, what we have to do is that we have to take life as from the hand of God and to enjoy it despite trials and perplexities, because life can be perplexed sometimes. He goes on and says, and he's working off this verse, verse 1, such a life contains within it the element of trust and adventure. That would refer to the word cast. Cast your bread, cast your goods, cast your seed, cast your crops. Cast your bread. Um, you, you see, cast demands, as he says here, total commitment. Uh, your bread is used in the sense of goods, livelihood, as in Deuteronomy 8. And this has a forward look to it. Cast your bread upon the surface of the waters, for you will, you will find it. That has a future concept to it. Um, 
and it involves a reward which you call patience. Um, you will find it after many days, many days. Th these are business ventures that are long-term. Uh, any venture requires risk. Uh, any venture, uh, the best ventures involve calculated risk. You get the best wisdom that you can get. I, I, I have a friend I, I talk with often, and oh, a while back, he, sa he said, hey, would you pray for me? Because I'm, I'm getting different financial advice, and I'm really redoing the financial plan, and I'm really asking God for wisdom, and I hear this, and I'm talking to this guy, and I'm getting this, and I guess I really need some wisdom. He texted me about a week later. He said, hey, I got the answer. Ecclesiastes 11 on how I should invest. Uh, that would be verse 2. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. On the earth. This is diversification. Um, uh, put your eggs, uh, don't put your eggs in one basket. It's not in Proverbs, but it could be. Uh, spread it out. Uh, don't put it all... <laughs> Don't put it all in red and uh, hope for the best. Diversify. Why? Because misfortunes happen and you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you, you see, there's wisdom in learning to live like a merchant. This is how merchants live. They, they, they got to use their head. They got to diversify because when you diversify, you minimize risk because you know something's going to happen. There's going to be some kind of misfortune. There's going to be some kind of setback. You, you know, um, I, I remember when I was in college, I had a guy tell me, he said, he said that Christianity is ridiculous. He, he said, that's just, it's an absolute crutch. I said, it's not a crutch, it's a stretcher. That's what I said to the guy. Uh, he just hadn't, he just hadn't uh, hit the wall yet. You see? All of life is faith. Unbelievers live by faith. It's just not Christians who live by faith. I can't believe you take leaps of faith. Biblical people don't take leaps of faith. There is no leap. Faith, Hebrews 11 is about faith. Uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. We come to him because he came to us. We have a proven faith. Our God doesn't ask us to throw away our minds. He doesn't ask us to, to have blind faith. He says, come, let us reason together. Oftentimes, you'll, you'll read the word think. You'll read the word consider. You'll read the word meditate. Use your mind. Christianity is using your mind. It's not a blind leap. It's, it's taking God at his word the God who cannot lie, the God who is watching over his word to perform it. He has made certain promises to us in Scripture, and you live off the promises, and you hold them up, and you trust in him. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Man, I just had a financial setback. Those are tough to swallow. But my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. Uh, you have to take it all from the hand of God. Do you not? 
because setbacks occur. Um, Thomas Watson, one of my all-time favorite books, All Things for Good. Sometimes we invest and and, and here's, here, now let me say something else. Sometimes you don't have any money to invest. You're just surviving. You're just trying to make it. You ever been there? Well, that's fun, isn't it? I mean, maybe your friends are in an investment club and they're reading all this and uh, you're, you're not doing that. You're just trying to make your bills. And that's very discouraging because you, you, you thought at this age in your life you would be this far down the road and up here. But you're not this far down the road up here. You're all the way back here and down here. And you're just hoping you can play the electric bill and feed your kids. That's no fun. Nobody enjoys that. And what happens is, you see, you, you get sick with worry and you go, oh my gosh, I mean, uh, th this is a major, I hadn't planned on being here. How am I ever going to recover? What about my future? What about all this? But you see, if, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're walking by faith, as everyone else in the world is walking by faith. See, everyone is trusting in something. They may be trusting in the stock market. They may be trusting in the corporation they work for that is rock solid. They may be trusting on good health. They may be trusting on this. But it's all emptiness and vanity because misfortune can occur at any time. But if you build your life on the rock, on the God who cannot lie, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You may not have a surplus, but you don't need a surplus because he's got something called manna, and he'll show it up to you every day. That's what he does. That's what he does. When you're down to zero, he's not down to zero. We all want Costco finances. We, want all, we, we all want Costco assets. I mean, we want to look at our financial positions, and it's just, you just write Costco. Everything you need is on that sheet. Oh, I, I'm on well, my retirement, everything, I got this. I, it's all, it's just, I'm loaded, man. I'm just loaded. I told you this before, the biggest Costco in the world is in Honolulu because the cost of living is so high in Honolulu. They sell more out of that Costco in Honolulu, and I've been to that Costco. They turn that Costco over every three weeks completely. Completely. See, we think, well, everything's at Costco. Actually, everything isn't at Costco because it comes into Costco and then it goes out. And, and, and see, my, my point is, they've got it, but they sell it, and then they've got to be resupplied. When, when you've got a big account and you're strong financially, um, there's, um, well, the, the, you're, you're trusting in your wealth. I mean, how would you not trust in your wealth? See, it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because if he's rich, his tendency is to make the money as God. It's, God, God can trust very few men with riches who love him because they, turn, they tend to turn our hearts. It's just the nature of riches. You say, I'm, I'm not on Costco. I'm, I'm more of a, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm more of a brown lunch paper bag guy. That's kind of where my finances are. Well, so be it. Either way, you've got to be supplied. If you've got a big warehouse full of goods, that's going to have to be resupplied. If you've got a brown lunch, paper bag lunch you take, well, that's got to be resupplied. Lamentations 3, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. 
that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new, what? Every morning. The manna was there every morning. Every night they went to bed and they, and they were out of stuff and they had nothing to feed their kids. There was no oatmeal, there was no milk. There was no nothing. And every morning it was there for 40 years and God never missed. Christian life is an adventure and Christian life is an adventure of faith. You invest, you do the best you can. Sometimes God blesses. Sometimes he takes away. Let me read Watson. Watson said this. God says, I am thy, I am thy physician. God is a skillful physician. He knows what is best. God involve, observes the different temperaments of men and knows what will work most effectually. Some are of a more sweet disposition and are drawn by mercy. Others are more rugged and knotty pieces, K-N-O-T-T-Y. These God, these God deals with in a more forcible way. Some things are kept in sugar. Some things are kept in brine. God does not deal alike with all. He has trials for the strong and cordials, mercies for the weak. God is a faithful physician and therefore will turn all to the best. If God does not give you what you like, he will give you that which you need. A physician does not so much study to please the taste of the patient as to cure his disease. We complain that very sore trials lie upon us. Let us remember that God is our physician. Therefore, he labors rather to heal us than to humor us. God's dealing with his children, though they are sharp, they are safe. And in order to cure that he might do thee good at thy later end, that's Deuteronomy 8.16. Sometimes the Lord gives and sometimes the Lord takes away. Sometimes you venture and you put an investment and sometimes you get a return and sometimes you don't. But see, God's controlling both. And both are for our good, ultimately. So learn to live like, learn to invest like a merchant. The next verses, verses uh, three to six, this is, a, this is a really great lesson. Learn to work like a farmer. I love this. Learn to work like a farmer. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. You know, farmers are men of faith. There's a, there's a great painting. Can't tell you who did it. Um, but when you see it, you never forget it. And you've probably seen it. It, uh, it's a picture of a husband and wife. They're not dressed real nicely, the kind of homespun clothing. Um, she didn't have any on any makeup. He's kind of a rough, co he's a farmer. And they're out in the land, and they obviously have just plowed, and they have just planted the seed. And in the middle of their field. And he is on his knees like this, and she is standing next to him, with her hand on, on his shoulder, and both their heads are bowed, and their eyes are closed. That's been life for thousands of years. You see? Uh, 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 here's the thing farmers know. Um, uh, farmers learn to submit to God's control of events. They learn to submit to God's control of events. I have a friend that farms in uh, western Nebraska, 4,000 acres, and over the years we exchange texts. 
And there have been periods, the, the rain went 10 miles north of us, Steve. Would you pray for rain? Now, he knows that God controls rain. Why didn't that rain hit us? Man, I could really use it. Yeah, but it went 10 miles north. All right, Lord, we're trusting you. You see? I remember when he got real sick, and he was in the hospital, and they thought he was going to die, and his harvest came in, and uh, he, it went, he, couldn't, he couldn't even breathe hardly. So a bunch of other folks in the community came over, and they did the harvest for him. You see? What, what, what happens, what, what I see in verse 3 is learn to work like a farmer because farmers learn to submit to God's control of events. Um, look at verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Uh, by the way, in verse 3, if the clouds come and they're full, that's the goodness of God. Uh, if, if the clouds don't pour forth rain and you're in drought, uh, the Scripture says God controls both. Now, verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the, crowds, uh, the clouds will not reap. The whole business of being a farmer is to sow, and then you reap. But if all you do is watch the wind, he who watches the wind will not sow, he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Uh, the, the lesson here is you don't wait for ideal conditions to get to work. You, you, you can't wait for ideal conditions. When, it, when the opportunity is there, you get to work. You, uh, you don't procrastinate. Uh, you get to work and sow. Verse 5. To me, again, it's talking about a farmer. I think the lesson of verse 5 is don't get paralyzed by God's mysteries, by the things that don't make sense. Verse 5 says... Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the path of the pregnant woman, in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Uh, that word translated wind can also be spirit. It, it, the idea could be, and, and Jesus spoke of the wind in John 3 to Nicodemus. You know, the wind blows where it will, just as the Spirit of God blows where he will. But that word wind can be spirit, and the idea that could be meant here is just as you do not know how bones are formed in the womb of the woman, neither do you know how the spirit and soul of the child is formed along with the body. We have technology today where we've seen, you know, we have this unbelievable technology. You can see what's going on in the womb, and you can see that baby develop. You've seen that time-lapse photography. That's incredible to see. But see, they can see the body, but you can't figure out how that little person is inside the body, the soul, the spirit, the personality. Your kids come out of the womb, my kids came out of the womb bent. Sometimes a kid is compliant. If your firstborn is compliant, you think you're a brilliant parent. And then the second one comes, and he's the kid from hell. He's the pit bull who has no fear. And suddenly you're on your knees asking God for help. How do I handle this kid? But, but, but how is it that one kid comes out compliant and one kid comes out tough? How is it one kid comes out good at math and another kid is not good at math, but he can read people like a book? How is it that, how, how does that happen? God does it. How does he do it? 
We don't know. We don't have a clue. But he does it. Just as you do not know the path of the Spirit and how bones are formed in the womb of the, in the, womb of the, the pregnant woman, you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sometimes God shocks us and stuns us with reversals, with disappointments, with mysteries. And, and, and we love the Lord and we're following the Lord, but we don't understand what he's up to. We're kind of shocked that we've had this, we've been blindsided by this event or by this illness or by this reversal or it, it, it just, it kind of shocks us. But you see, don't forget Ecclesiastes 7, consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent. See, suddenly, you, you, suddenly your life is bent. Man, I never saw this coming. Okay, this happened. Consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent in the day of prosperity. Be glad in the day of adversity. Consider, think, for God has made the one as well as the other. So you know that things come from the hand of God, but don't get so hung up on when things are reversed or when you're disappointed or when you're jolted or your life is earthquaked that you get paralyzed and you don't work and you don't do the work you're supposed to do. I had a conversation recently with a couple, and <clears throat> they, they have done well, and um, it's been a good season for them, and something recently happened at work, and he, uh, he, he has done extremely well and been well compensated, and, and suddenly from above, there was a mandate given to him that we want this production to go up exponentially and uh, if not, we're going to lay off individuals on your team, da, da, da. And it was just, it was a shock. It was a shock. And, he, and, and they, they were stunned. And, but as we were having the conversation, apparently over the last <clears throat> number of months, several have said to them, have you, ever start, started, have you ever thought about starting your own business? Because you see, we, yeah, we do business with that company, but really we do business, we, we're doing business with you. Why don't you start your own company? And, you know, they thought about it, but they never, well, because things were going so well. Well, now, because of something that happened out of the blue, within 24 hours, they're thinking, maybe I should start my own company. But their thought, and then they said, you know, but here's the problem. If we had done this a year ago, it would have been ideal. But we've had some things we made some commitments and all of this, and actually this is not for us, although we think it would probably go well because the economy is going well where they live, but for us personally, uh, this would really be a risk. <clears throat> but these other people that we trust their judgment have said, maybe this is something you ought to pursue. And I, I said, you know, have you ever noticed in Scripture how God often calls people to do things at the worst possible time? Uh, I, I've seen that. Yeah. You know, Lord, hey, 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 you know, Lord, you know, last year would have been great. Well, last year's gone. You know, in 12 months, it might be really good, Lord. Yeah, but 12 months isn't here. Sometimes he forces us into situations where we have to trust him. And I just shared with him, I said, you remember when uh, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they finally crossed over the promised land? And they crossed the Jordan River, and in Josh, that's Joshua 3 and 4. And if you look at Joshua 4, 19, it gives the exact date. 
And what's interesting, we can just pass right over it because we got a different calendar than they did. Usually the Jordan River is a nice, sweet, calm, docile river. You can, you know, blow up inner tubes and float down it and drink your Jack Coke. But when they crossed the Jordan River at Jericho back then, the Jordan River was a mile wide and 250 feet deep. And God had them camp alongside the river for three days and stare at it. It was the worst possible time to cross the Jordan River. What's this all about? I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. Are you getting godly counsel? Does the godly counsel say go ahead and move in faith? See, we don't walk by sight. All we see is the mile-wide, 250-foot-deep raging torrent. We don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. They had a little bit of history of God handling bodies of water for them. (laughs) Did they not? And as soon as the priest, the lead guy, his foot touched the water, what happened? (laughs) History repeated itself again. And they crossed on dry land. And when they got to the other side, they weren't wiping mud off their sandals because there was no mud because God is in the details, even at the worst possible time. Uh, Verse 6 is again about sowing and reaping. Uh, Now, what's this about? Work like a farmer. Learn to work like a farmer. Sow your seed in the morning, And do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. Uh, You know, there's a basic principle here. I mean, this is so basic, it's embarrassing, but the principle is this. If you don't sow, you're not going to reap. If you don't go to work, if you don't put seed in the ground, you're not going to have a harvest. Uh, the principle here is do a good day's work. Do what you can do. See, and, and here's the deal. You do what you can do, and then you leave it to the Lord. There's only so much you can do, you see. That's it. We have so much energy. We have so much, um, uh, well, that's it. We have so much energy. And the thing is, as you get older, you lose energy. Have you noticed this? This is wild. You, you And when you hang around people with energy, it exhausts you, (laughs) like grandkids. It's really interesting. I never saw that one coming. Uh, It reminds me of Psalm 127. Flip over there real quickly. Just a couple of books to your left. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're to learn, you know, you got to learn how to work like a farmer. Farmers work. They work hard. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. If you're working by yourself, if you're living by yourself under the sun without God, once again, it's going to be destruction. Because unless the Lord builds the house, they they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Watch this. It's vain for you to rise up early. 
to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. God's the giver. God's got to give the increase. You sow, you work, um, but God's got to give the increase. And our, 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 our God is so great that even when we're exhausted and we're out of energy and you go to sleep, he just keeps on giving. He gives you his beloved even in their sleep. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? You, you grow older and you don't have the energy and you can't put in the hours you used to have. You, you know, it's funny. At certain points in life, you realize you've lost a step. You know, athletes, athletes can play for a while, but they can't play much into their 30s. Most guys, there's an exception here and there. But usually around 30, you lose a step. You can still play. Um, did you notice in your life, some of you guys, I remember hitting 50 and having a conversation with two of my friends that were 50. And what we were all saying is, you know, I kind of lost, lost a step this year. I can still do it. I can still play. But uh, I lost a step. Now, you got some wisdom, so you can compensate, but you did lose a step. And then you hit 60. And uh, you lose another step. It's just interesting. This is life. But you see, you do the work that you can do, and then you leave the results to him. He's the supplier. He's the one that's got to provide. Once again, I'd refer you to Isaiah 46, 2. This is one of my favorite verses. The older I get, the more I love this verse. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and you remnant of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. You're breaking down, but I'll be the same. Even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have borne you, I have carried you, I will bear you, and I will carry you. That's a phenomenal verse. He takes us through the stages of life. When, when we are infants, we are utterly dependent. Sometimes if you live long enough, you will get, once again, utterly dependent. And we don't like to be there, but that's the cycle of life. But it's not the end of life if you know Christ. Let's jump to verse 7 through 10. Um, this section we called Learn to Enjoy Life and Trust God with Your Future, which basically is Isaiah 46. Uh, verse 7 teaches this. Learn to enjoy the gift of life. Let me get back to Ecclesiastes. The light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Uh, that's just talking about the goodness of God. You ever wake up in the morning on a beautiful, sunny day? Spring-like weather? It's, it's, it's incredible. It's gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. Everything's budding. Everything's blooming. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. That's a gift of God. He created the greater light to rule by day and the lesser light to rule by night, the sun and the moon. I told you when we were at Hearst Castle several years ago and we went down to the beach uh, in San Simeon and we're watching the sun go down and the waves coming in. It was just spectacular. It was gorgeous. It was incredible. And Mary said, you got to take a picture of that and text it to the kids. So I'm taking this, you know, this picture of the sun going down. And, and it was just magnificent. And she said, and get a picture of those mountains. And I turned, and I got behind, because those mountains come right down to the beach, and then just, I didn't know this, but just coming over the mountains 
was the lesser light, was the moon. <laughs> it was magnificent. Magnificent. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Learn to enjoy the gift of life. Just being alive. Just being alive. Seeing those sunsets. Seeing that moon. Seeing the Big Dipper and the little... See, just... Uh, but verse 8 says this. I think the lesson of verse 8 is learn to enjoy life despite the days of darkness. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for there they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility uh, unless you know the Lord, because if you know the Lord, uh, the, the days of sun, the days of sunshine, the days of brightness, the day of prosperity in your life, they're wonderful. But you see, you're going to have days of adversity too. Uh, I, I, I think wisdom teaches us, the older we get, uh, we thank God, we thank God for the gift of life and for you guys remember that little chorus, uh, count your blessings, name them one by one, count your blessings, see what God has done, count your blessings, um, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. So often in life when we hit rough patches, when, when our lives are crooked and there are dark days and we're depressed and all that, um, it's so easy to get uh, to grumble, to complain, to look at other people and compare and say, you know, they don't deal with this. I'm dealing with this. They don't deal with this. I'm dealing with this. But you see, uh, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You can't lose a thankful heart. And, and how do you work your way out of that? You gotta count what he's done. You gotta, you gotta do an audit of the goodness of God. Yeah, you've been nailed. Yeah, you've been hit with this. But you see, that's not the full story. You gotta look at you gotta look at all of the financials. And if you start counting those blessings, what's gonna happen is there's gonna be gratitude and there's gonna be thankfulness and there's gonna be a humility and there's gonna be an understanding that Lord, I need both in my life, and ultimately you're gonna bring good out of the good and out of the bad. That's perspective, that's wisdom. Uh, then in verse uh, nine. He's got a specific word to young men. And if you're a young man here tonight, you need to listen up because there's tremendous wisdom here. And the older guys would say amen to this. Believe me, they would say amen to this because a lot of guys that are further down the trail look back on their early years with a lot of regret because the early years were squandered. The early years were wasted. Wilt Chamberlain wrote a book, and in that book, he claimed to have slept with over, I believe, 20,000 women. He should be ashamed of that. He died alone. He died wealthy in that mansion in Bel Air that was constructed especially for a guy over seven feet tall. But he died alone. But he sure bedded a lot of women. Verse 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of, your, of young manhood. 
Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Enjoy your youth. Enjoy it. Hey, play basketball without stretching. You know? Enjoy life. You want to do a little travel? Travel. You want to try, you know, try, try that job? Or you want to, you know, sail a, a, a boat from Alaska to Hawaii? All right, go do it. Great. Wonderful. Enjoy it. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. There is a judgment. There is an accounting. Uh, it's not what Hitchens was hoping. Uh, I, I want total freedom without any judgment. You know, the big mantra of our culture is don't judge me. Well, we're all going to be judged. Judgment has been given to the Son. So, so, if you're a young guy, live wisely. Live wisely. You know, one of the things I, I saw a while back that just struck me, Tim Tebow was doing a big press conference. I can't remember what game it was after. I can't remember if he was at Florida or playing pro ball. I can't remember. But it was just jammed with reporters. And they're throwing him questions left and right. And it, it, this was the one, maybe you saw it, where someone said, hey, is it true that you're saving yourself for marriage? And, and Tim looked at the guy with a big smile. And he goes, yeah, I'm saving myself for marriage. I'm a virgin. And he got dead silent in that room. And Tebow started laughing. <laughs> it was one of the greatest things I ever saw. He just started cracking up. And he said, you know what? He goes, you know what? This is really funny. This is the first time you guys have been quiet since we got in here. <laughs> you guys have got nothing to say. And he just, he was cracking up. He says, you can't believe I can live like that, can you? He goes, yeah, I'm saving myself because I want that to be for me and my wife, and that's it. I remember another time back when Dick Cavett had a, night, uh, a, a program at night. Some of you guys remember Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett was interviewing Billy Graham, and he was talking to Graham, and, you know, a studio full of people. And at one point, he's, and, you know, it's the late 60s, and he said, uh, basically said, uh, Mr. Graham, when are you preachers going to get with the times and understand that... Uh, Sexual pleasure is, is a good thing and for everyone. And, and, and Graham looked at him and he said, it's a mistake to live like that. It does damage to people. I'm thankful that I was not intimate with a woman until my wedding night with my wife, Ruth. And they begin to mock him and laugh at him. And he just, he just, he just sat there. The next guest out was Pat Boone. And Pat Boone came out. He didn't look like a prophet because he was wearing white shoes. <laughs> but I'm telling you, he came out there and was an Elijah because he sat down and before Cabot could, Cabot could ask him a question, he said, hey, Dick, I want to say something about the question you asked to Dr. Graham about him being faithful and, and waiting to have sex until he was with his wife on his wedding night. He said, I noticed everyone in here laughed at him. He said, I'll tell you someone who didn't laugh, and that was his wife. And once again, it was as silent in that room as it was with Tebow in his room. We've all messed up in different ways. You run to Christ and confess your sin, whatever it is. And you can be forgiven, and you can be put on a new path. 
I think what verse 9 is saying, here's a lesson. I think what he's saying here in verse 9 to young men, he's saying, learn to enjoy the ride without going off the rails. You know, guys can live without sex. You can live without it and you can survive. Now, you wouldn't want to, but it can be done. You can't live without food and you can't live without water, but you can live without sex. And let me say this. Let's make this crystal clear. In this day of sexual anarchy and nonsense and foolishness, the only sexual relationship that God endorses and blesses is a sexual relationship between a husband and wife in a covenant of marriage, period. Anything else is sin. Homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, anything is sin other than a husband and wife within the covenant of marriage. And the wise young man will seek that and pursue it and ask God for help. And if that has not been your scenario, just go to Christ. And he can begin to mature you. You want to work on becoming a one-woman man before you're ever married. You want to work on your character before you become a husband. Last verse is for everyone. He says, so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. I like what Philip Riken says here. Riken says, the lesson here is learn to pursue mental and physical health. You say, what? Let me read a couple paragraphs and we'll close. And again, this is for all of us, not just young guys. After his call for older people and young people to rejoice, Solomon gives a call to remove. He says, remove vexation or remove anger from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. That's verse 10. Our translation read a little bit differently. He says, with these words... Solomon advises us to eliminate the bad things in life that trouble our bodies and our soul. A vexation or anger is any problem that causes us worry and concern that angers, grieves, or irritates. It is the bitterness provoked by a hard and disappointing world. There is little point in listing examples. With so much trouble in the world, it would be hard to know where to start or how to end. Uh, The vexations, the angers, the frustrations are different for all of us. What angers or irritates one man may not anger someone else. But we can agree that life is full of vexation, frustration, and anger. Uh, It is also full of physical pain, whether from illness, accident, disability, old age. We all suffer bodily pains. Once again, Solomon is honest about the troubles of life, both both physically and psychologically. He also has some advice for us. We should, we should do what we can to remove discouragement from our souls and to minimize damage to our bodies. Let me say that again. We should do what we can to remove discouragement from our souls and to minimize damage to our bodies. 
This is not a call to deny the very real suffering that everyone experiences, nor is it a call to escape pain by living for pleasure. Rather, it is a call to take care of our mental and physical health. If we are getting discouraged by various vexations or frustrations, and if we are tempted, therefore, to become depressed or disillusioned, we should do what the preacher says and remove those vexations from our heart. This starts with refusing to feel sorry for ourselves. The very best remedy for vexation and frustration is to go to the Lord in prayer, telling him all our troubles. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but see, see, Steve, my anger is about my, my dad and what he did to me. Or my, he left me when I was three years old. Or my anger is about this. Or my wife, former wife, who did this and poisoned my kids. Or my anger. Hey, guys. The hardest thing for me to do is to pray for people who have wronged me. But I force myself. I force myself, and God knows it's hard. He knows it's hard. But don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead and ask God to be merciful and ask God to be gracious. And if they don't know him, ask him to bring them into the kingdom. That'll remove that toxicity from your heart. And it'll give you mental health and the peace of God. Lastly, he says, if our sufferings are physical, it's right and good for us to seek a way to ease the pain. When the Bible tells us to put away pain, it's not giving us license to drown our sorrows in alcohol or to use life-destroying drugs. But physical pain is an evil that we are right to avoid when we are able to do it in a way that honors God. If there's medication that can help you, thank God for the medication. But as with anything else, it's got to be done in moderation. There's a temptation. Alcohol. Um, there will be a day, you, you know, as my dad said to me in his early 80s, you know, Steve, getting old sucks. I'll never forget it, because my dad never said that. But you know what? He was getting kind of fed up with it. He'd been a great athlete. He'd had a great run. And he couldn't walk from the dining room to the kitchen without that walker. He'd shriveled up some, still had those massive hands. I'll never forget that. You know, Steve? Getting old sucks. And another time, I asked him in the car, I said, hey, Dad, do you ever think about dying? Do you ever worry about dying? He goes, uh, he, he said, I, I think about it. I don't worry about it. Hey, I never worry about it, Steve. Never. Yeah. That's one thing I never worry about because I know where I'm going. And he's there now. 
You see, he lost his strength. He lost some health. Sometimes in old age, you lose your eyesight. Sometimes you lose your hearing. Sometimes you start losing your memory. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll carry us home. So, Father, we thank you that we can live with hope and optimism in every stage of life because our lives are in your hand and in your care. You're the provider. When we can't work like a farmer, we want to, but we can't, you'll make another way. What a gracious God. What a wonderful God you are. Thank you that our futures are secure in Christ forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.